You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. You'd have to be living under that proverbial rock to not have noticed that aliens are in the news again. A former U.S. intelligence official, an Air Force veteran, claims a top-secret program is withholding evidence of alien spacecrafts. Certainly interesting. The military as reliable as death and taxes is America's fervid interest in UFOs. We've been eagerly awaiting news from NASA on the subject ever since the agency became involved in the UFO phenomenon last year. Now NASA has given an update on their study. Can the agency that took us to the moon and sent robots to Mars give us satisfying answers about the identity of mysterious objects seen in our skies? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, we talk with a science journalist and member of the NASA UFO group about what it was like to sit on the panel and, of course, what it has found so far. This episode of our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check, NASA UFO Study. Historically, government investigations into UFO sightings have been carried out by the U.S. military, usually the Air Force. Recently, the terminology changed. UFO, unidentified flying object, became UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. And now another change, as NASA has gotten in on the action. The agency redefined the acronym UAP to cover unidentified anomalous phenomena when, in a press conference, Daniel Evans, Assistant Deputy Associate Administrator for Research at NASA's Science Mission Directorate, announced that the agency had convened a UAP investigative panel. We plan on bringing together some of the country's leading scientists, aeronautics experts, and data practitioners. We expect the study to kick off in the early fall. It should take about nine months to complete. NASA Associate Administrator Thomas Serbukin said one objective was to collect better data. The study will focus on identifying available data, how to best uh, collect future data, and how NASA can use these data to move the scientific understanding of UAPs forward. In the spring of 2023, NASA's 16-person UAP group, made up of scientists, engineers, a journalist, and an astronaut, gave an update on their investigation. And so, here we are. Is the agency getting closer to answering our questions about the identity of the mysterious objects seen in our skies? 
Here is Seth's conversation with that journalist who is serving on NASA's UAP panel. I'm Nadia Drake, and I am a science journalist. I'm one of 16 people on NASA's panel studying unidentified anomalous phenomena, and our job really is to answer eight or nine statements of task. It sounds pretty boring, but in reality, it's not. Well, okay, so there were all these reports of things seen in the sky. Uh, What were you instructed to do other than read them? (laughs) So reading the reports was actually not in our charter. Our job is to put together a roadmap for NASA to use if the space agency decides that it wants to contribute its considerable resources to tackling the problem of UAP. When are they going to decide that? I'm not actually sure, but our report will be submitted at some point this summer. Okay, so uh, maybe later in the year we'll, we'll learn what they plan to do as a next step. I, you know, NASA altered the UAP acronym Uh, to be unidentified anomalous phenomena as opposed to unidentified aerial phenomena. How how does that expand the the concept in any way? Do any of these sightings involve hardware that's not come from the sky? Right. So the definition of UAP, the acronym, actually changed during the time that we were doing fact-finding meetings. And what happened was that the Department of Defense actually changed the definition. They instead of considering only aerial phenomena, so events that happen in Earth's atmosphere, they brought in the definition of that A to anomalous, which includes events that are in space, in Earth's atmosphere, and underwater. Um, what we heard Sean Kirkpatrick, who, who runs the DOD office that's in charge of investigating UAP, tell us at the meeting that we had a couple of weeks ago, he said they actually were able to get rid of the one underwater sighting that they had. So maybe underwater isn't so much of a thing anymore. Maybe <laughs> you think they'll go back to the original acronym? I think people <laughs> are just so confused. They're probably using both. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and UFO. Don't forget that one. <laughs> well, UFO, at least everybody knows what that is. Right. <laughs> well, remind us, you know, what the body of data was that you were investigating. I mean, there were lots of reports, and I think uh, something like 800 plus of those reports survive an initial, you know, narrowing down of the field, uh, were they the same claims that the Pentagon UAP group was investigating? Right. So the Pentagon's all-domain anomaly resolution office is in charge of investigating those 800-some events that you had mentioned. Our job was not to look at those. We didn't really dive into any of them. You did see, if you watched the public meeting, an analysis of one of those events, which one of our panel members put together, in which he used some pretty simple geometry to come up with an explanation for an object that the Pentagon had called go fast. And by using that geometry, he could determine that the object was actually not moving very quickly at all, and that its motion was consistent with wind speeds at 11,000 or 13,000 feet. Was this the video that looked like it was kind of a balloon sailing across the ocean? Yes, and it looked like it was moving very, very, very quickly, when in reality what was moving very, very, very quickly was the aircraft that made the observation, not so much the object itself. Okay, well, Nadia, what's your take on the type of people that were on this panel? I mean, I presume you got to know them a little bit. I I don't want any personal details here, but what evidence were they considering? I mean, did they do their own independent investigations? Because scientists usually want to give you their take on any perplexing phenomenon. 
So the people on the panel actually getting to know them was one of the very best parts of being part of this process. We had a huge variety of expertise among panel members and everybody contributed in their own field. Since October of 2022, we've had several fact-finding meetings as a panel where we heard presentations from various scientists, various experts um, in aviation, in astronomy. We heard from the DOD a couple of times. And so we were able to evaluate all of the information that they gave us and figure out what made the most sense to consider moving forward. So when we when we come up with this roadmap for NASA, when we're making these recommendations about what the space agency might want to do, we're basing that on the information that we were given uh, over the last seven or eight months. What was your impression of the data? I mean, obviously, you have to generalize here, but I mean, you know, many of these reports are made by, if you will, members of the public or not necessarily schooled in, uh, you know, observation of things with which they may not be familiar. And beyond that, there's the whole question of instrumentation. Did any of these things have actual measurements or were they just descriptions of what somebody saw? My understanding, and this is based on the events in the Department of Defense database, so that 800 some odd number that Sean mentioned during the public meeting, is that there's a mix. Some of those are eyewitness reports, others are sensor data. So data taken by military aircraft, um, where it looks like there's an object on a sensor. There's a wide variety. um, And I think you're kind of tiptoeing into one of the areas that we as a panel are very interested in addressing, which is using UAP as a really great teaching tool for helping the public understand how science gets done. And so when you're talking about folks making observations about things that they don't necessarily understand, what's the next step in going about understanding those things? How do we know the things that we know? How does the process of knowing actually unfold? How do we do that scientifically? And I think that's what we're the most excited about is using this as a learning experience. How can we demonstrate the power of the scientific method using a question that is as compelling as it is? Can you give me some idea of uh, what fraction of the 800 and some reports that you looked at, you know, you came to uh, uh, what you considered a probable explanation as opposed to those cases where you said, well, we don't know what it is. So the, the um, All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office has these 800 and some odd hand-waving number of reports. And Sean told us during the meeting that somewhere between two and 5% of those are anomalous. And his definition of anomalous was something that is not immediately explainable either by the observer or by the instrument. And I said during the hearing that I think a lot of that definition is, is it's doing a lot of work. What, what does immediately explainable mean? So I don't have an opinion on what these objects are. My opinion is that they do seem to comprise a small fraction of the total events in the DOD database. And those 800 actually include events reported by the FAA as well, but they span 27 years. Well, okay, the Pentagon can identify most of the objects, you know, maybe 95% of them or so, as balloons or aircraft or orbiting satellites. But still, there's a lot of data here to go through. And even if, all right, a few percent of them, and that's what I think I hear you saying, a few percent of them sort of defied easy 
explanation or maybe even not so easy explanation. And of course, I, I suspect that some people will point to those you know, outliers and say, well, that's where the uh, alien visitation is, right? Because we can't explain that. This top-notch panel couldn't explain those, and that's because, of course, the explanation is right in front of their noses. It's aliens. I mean, any of that in, in this work? Not, not in our work as a panel. Remember, it's, it's not our job to try and actually explain the unexplainable as a 16-member group. What we're hoping to do is help NASA come up with really great methods for explaining the unexplainable, the potentially unexplainable. And the problem here, as I see it, is that how we're defining what's anomalous is ambiguous. We don't have a good definition for what that means. We don't actually know what it is we're looking for. So if we're telling NASA to gather more data using either the agency's own assets or by partnering with commercial space partners, we need to give them some idea of what they're looking for in all of those data, and we don't have that yet. And that makes this quite tricky. Look, I mean, is that actually realistic? Because, you know, you say, well, you don't have too much data, and Thomas Serbukin, uh, I think he's the NASA associate administrator, has said that the he wanted to make a field that was data poor into data rich, but it may not be so easy to do that. I mean, how, how do you do that? I mean, if you were investigating, I don't know, ghosts, that sounds like an editorial comment, but if you were investigating ghosts, how would you increase the quality and quantity of the data? How would they do that here, short of building sensors all around the world? That's one of the biggest questions that we as a panel are wrestling with. What can we recommend that NASA do? So one of the areas that is that we're thinking about are satellite data. What kinds of Earth observing satellites might be up to the task of spotting a spacecraft that's moving anomalously, an aircraft that's moving anomalously? We asked the question, did any of NASA's Earth observing assets see the Chinese spy balloon, a very large object that was moving very slowly across the United States of America for a very long time? And so using that kind of example, we can start to build a framework for thinking about how to put together the data that could be informative. Were there any examples in the data here that became, if you will, celebrities within the data? That is to say that everybody was baffled and uh, yet it sounded like they should understand what's going on here? Nothing that comes to mind. I think I think the analysis of the GoFast video is probably the closest because when you see that video initially, it does look like you have an object that's moving very, very, very quickly. Um, and then, of course, we learn that's not actually the case. Yeah, it's just geometry, right? It's everything is math. <laughs> <laughs> everything is math. Sounds it's like you're all the way down. recollecting uh, <laughs> statements from uh, either a relative or a teacher at some point. <laughs> so, was was there any conclusion that you felt the panel came to? Not yet. Um, that's our job over the next couple of weeks. I think the conclusion that, well, if we came to any conclusion, it is that we don't have the data we need to answer the question of what UAP actually are. And I know that's frustrating. I mean, the interests of the military would seem to me to be obvious. They, they want to know what's up in the skies, clearly. And, you know, even the FAA might be interested in that. But it seems to me that this whole thing is driven by the public's interest and anything that smacks of aliens, right? Yeah, one of the points that I think is important for us as a panel to consider is that 
we don't want to be reinventing the wheel here. The Department of Defense already has a very sophisticated collection apparatus. They have the data set, they have the classified data. They can do analyses on those data that we can't do. And so what we need to think about are what are approaches that we can recommend that are complementary to that, that in some way add to it, that are independent of what the DOD is doing. They obviously have a very clear national security interest here. Um, They have a data set that is very, very prone to collection bias, right? It's all basically reports now, including the FAA, but from military aviators. So maybe one thing that NASA could recommend is that we put together some way for your average citizen to submit reports using instruments, maybe such as a cell phone, that have observational capabilities that could be informative in answering the question about, you know, what is something that somebody sees that they can't explain. Well, Seth, I wonder if you could summarize for us what the difference is between what the DOD is doing in investigating UFO sightings and what NASA is doing. Well, I think the important point is that these two organizations are expert in different things, right? You can imagine that the DOD could tell you or could tell themselves or tell somebody that this particular object seen flying across the sky, well, that's a military satellite because they know about those. NASA, on the other hand, could recognize, if you will, commercial satellites or uh, scientific satellites and stuff like that. And uh, so I, I think just the fact that they they both know about what's orbiting the Earth, but different things about what's orbiting the Earth means that the investigation will be a little more thorough. When Nadia says that NASA is being tasked with providing a roadmap for future investigations, um, what does she mean? Well, a roadmap usually just means that this is what you want to do. This is the result you want to get, you know, say an explanation for as many of these things as you can. But here's how you go about deciding what is what, right? I mean, you get a video and how do you analyze that? A roadmap is just a plan of attack, if you will. Is it NASA's job to try to identify the last two to five percent of the unidentified objects? Or are they going to do their best and then pass it on to the Department of Defense and they'll try to identify what those objects are? I I don't know how they're going to approach this. They may just do it in parallel. Uh, Both of these organizations are looking at the same data set and NASA will say, we can identify this percentage of them. And uh, the DOD will say, well, we understand what's happening in uh, this percentage of them. And, you know, neither one of them is going to get to 100%. And the question is, well, what then? And the answer to that is probably nothing. And so they explain the majority of them. And of course, there are always going to be cases that are still mysterious. Coming up, our conversation with Nadia Drake continues, including a discussion of why using science to look for aliens doesn't imply that they are routinely visiting our planet. This episode of Big Picture Science is Skeptic Check, NASA UFO Study.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In the spring of 2023, a NASA panel charged with making sense of more than 800 unidentified anomalous phenomena gave an update on their study. The 16-person group, composed of scientists and an astronaut, also included a journalist, Dr. Nadia Drake. Seth continues his discussion with Nadia about whether the agency will help us definitively identify the mysterious objects in our skies. And they also discuss how the scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence differs from ufology. After all, there are good reasons for thinking we are not alone. Nadia What does it really mean when a certain percentage of UAP sightings can't be definitively identified? It doesn't mean that's aliens, does it? No, it means they can't be definitively identified yet. That's my opinion. Okay, all right. (laughs) But but people have strong opinions. I mean, this is one of those things that has always amazed me about how you can very quickly and very easily get into a nasty confrontation with people because, uh, you know, the, many in the American public think that there really is something here and that the government, in this case, including NASA, is simply covering it up. Um, you know, how, how did that arise? When did the American public decide that the, the federal government was an unreliable source? Uh, maybe that's been true since 1776. I don't know. But, you know, it, it is a, a little puzzling to me. It is puzzling. I think that has been true since 1776. Um, people certainly do have very strong opinions, and, and it's been interesting to navigate that as I've been on this panel, and we can talk about that if you want. But I think what's what's the most interesting to me is that I'm sure you've had these conversations, too, with people who want to and are very interested in telling you about their experience with something in the sky that was behaving in ways that they couldn't explain. I'm sure you've gotten a lot more of that than I have. And I think it's really interesting to hear what perplexes people, to learn about the various experiences that they have that they can't explain. And so when I have these conversations, I think about it and I say, okay, I I believe you. I believe that you saw something that you can't explain. But how do we get from that to saying it's aliens? How do those dots connect? when there's so many other possible explanations for what might be going on, and aliens is the one that consistently comes up, and it's the one that consistently provokes very strong reactions. It's, to me, and I got in a lot of trouble for saying this publicly, to me it's as much a cultural phenomenon as it is anything else. Nadia, my experience is that if you express skepticism that Earth is actually being visited, you will offend a lot of people. You know, do you have the same? I mean, when people hear that you're on this panel, then you tell them, well, you know, we're doing this, that, and the other. Maybe they react positively and maybe not. I have gotten a lot of reactions from people. I would say the loudest are the ones who are the most deeply unhappy with me. And I think for 
this community, skepticism is, it's a bad word. It's a bias. And what I said during the NASA public meeting is that in science, skepticism is not a bias or a bad word. It's how you get things done. It's how you know what you know. It's how you have confidence in your interpretation of something. And I would say a lot of a lot of us on the panel have gotten some very negative responses from the public. Some of the scientists on the panel were getting some criticism from other members of the scientific community, which just speaks to the kind of stigma that exists still. And for me in particular, um, because I am active on social media, it was it was pretty bad and it got really nasty. And it, I could tell that the flavor of criticism that I was getting was actually quite different from what some of the other panelists were getting. It was very misogynistic. People were very much attacking my credentials, my education, my ability to make observations, my, my right to be alive. They were very angry because I showed up and said, we need to be skeptical and let's see what happens. But what I would say about everybody on the panel, and I think this is really important, is that we all have open minds. We're all willing to go where the data lead us, regardless of what that is. We're following the data. We're not making up our minds before we see it. We're basing our opinions on what's out there. We're basing our opinions on what we can determine scientifically. And so my question to those people who are so angry at me is, do you also have an open mind? And are you, are you willing to learn? Because we are. What about the interaction then with uh, with SETI, which is this, you know, the scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence? You know, something about that. Uh, does that intersect at all with the UFO phenomenon? I think that's a question I want to ask you. What do you think? Well, only in that it sounds like it's the same topic, even though, in fact, it's not really. Uh, I was at a conference this past weekend, and, you know, when people learned what my day job was, they would come up to me and say, well, what about these uh, UFO sightings or UAP sightings, uh, depending on what, what was the latest press release they'd read? And uh, they just assumed that if there was something in Earth's airspace of uh, alien manufacture, that we within the SETI community would know about that and would be tracking it, whereas, in fact, that's just not true. I, I think there's a misunderstanding amongst the public about, you know, these various uh, approaches to learning if we're alone or not. I, I agree with that. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why, if nothing else, I hope that this exercise, that this NASA panel can help to correct some of the misconceptions about how these observa observations are made and how science is done. And I think it's interesting, um, the SETI connection is, is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that I think the SETI community is very familiar with the types of stigmas that surround UAP because I think the SETI community has been subjected to the same kind of ridicule, at least among scientists. That's changing now, but historically that has been true. And the other thing, the other similarity I see is that when you think about searching for technosignatures, you know, signs of technology, whether that's beyond the solar system or within the solar system, or even within Earth's atmosphere, there is a logical continuum there. There's a logical continuum if you think that technosignatures exist, if you think that alien civilizations exist. 
The difference is that in one situation, technosignatures outside the solar system, we have a lot of probabilities working in our favor. But that's not true when you think about technosignatures that might be present in Earth's atmosphere, where the laws of physics are just really not on our side. I'd really love to hear your take on how your father, Frank Drake, who really invented the field of SETI, how he felt about the whole UFO phenomenon. Did he ever discourse on it? Because I never heard him talk about it. You never heard him talk about it? No, oh. I didn't. Yeah. So I think Dad's Dad's opinion was kind of what I was saying about how if you think alien civilizations exist and that they're capable of crafting technologies that are detectable, then you have to acknowledge that maybe at some point one of those alien technologies is going to be close to Earth. It's just that the laws of physics are not in our favor there, and it's probably not happening, you know, 800 times over 27 years. He was very much, we actually had a conversation about this NASA study when it was announced in June of 2022. Um, so a couple of months before he died, he knew it was happening. He was really excited about it. He said, they should put me on the panel. <laughs> and his take was that even though none of these events are likely to be indications of an alien civilization, you can't just throw them all out because it only takes one. So he was actually very interested in the study. He was very interested in what we were doing. He's interested in the data that exists. And he used to speak with a lot of people about their experiences with unexplained objects. He would, he would interview them. He would go out to where the event happened. He would look at the photos. He would spend some time trying to figure out what was going on. He had a lot of patience for it, but he never found anything that was convincing to him. And so he was approaching it skeptically. He was approaching it scientifically, but he didn't think that it was something to just throw away right away. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that it's one of those things that is important if true. And uh, consequently, you it might be worth your time to find out whether it's true. Big if true. <laughs> well, Nadia, I hope that I am not uh, being... Uh, unkind or unrealistic to those people who think that there's some there here. Uh, but so far, it sounds to me like, yeah, we've got the, all these reports, but we haven't found, you know, that smoking gun yet, that there's no better evidence that we're being visited than there was 15 years ago. That's exactly right. And I know that's very frustrating for a lot of people to hear. And I think what we can do now is think about what are the kinds of information that would help us answer this question. And we can tell NASA to go ahead and do that. And they, as a science agency, have enormous resources at their disposal. They can leverage partnerships with commercial companies, with international partners. They can, they can do this if they want to. And so the question is, do they want to? Can NASA in some way help to put together a data set that will actually be informative. You know, in the United States, it uh, is almost a requirement for citizenship that you distrust the feds, right? <laughs> and, you know, having lived in Europe where there was none of that for some reason, even though perhaps it would have been justified, but there wasn't any of that. The government was, you know, assumed to be honest and trustworthy and doing a good job and competent and all that sort of thing too. Any idea why this is such an American phenomenon? I 
Don't know. I don't know why people think that the U.S. government is hiding evidence of extraterrestrial life from us, but it does seem to be a favorite among the conspiracy theorists. I can tell you that one of the questions I've gotten since I was a kid is, do you have aliens hidden in your basement? You've probably gotten that question too. And the answer is no. <laughs> you don't have a basement. I'm, I'm actually in my basement right now and I can show you around and we don't have aliens down here. Um, but I think what this all kind of speaks to, and this is the positive part, is that people are really interested in whether we are alone in the universe. That question is so compelling and the answer is going to be so profound that it gets a lot of people really excited including me. I really want to know the answer to that question too. And I know you do. We just look at different sources of information to find that answer. So is this a job for life, Nadia? I mean, what's next for the NASA panel? Are you going to be meeting again, uh, you know, in the fall? This might end up being something I've known for for the rest of my life. Um, so we are putting together a report that will address the statements of task, and that will be submitted to NASA at some point this summer, and then it will be made public. Nadia Drake, thank you so very much for talking with us. Oh, you're welcome. Nadia Drake is a science journalist and a member of the NASA group that is looking into UAPs. You know, it's always such a pleasure to talk to Nadia Drake. Uh, of course, her father, Frank Drake, was the guy who essentially invented the whole field of SETI. So, uh, you know, his office was always down the hall from mine, and it was a tremendous pleasure to be able to wander into that office at any time and talk to Frank. Well, Seth, I'm, I'm so sorry about his passing. You must really miss him as a colleague and as a friend. I do. And you know, Molly, I always refer to him as the world's last nice guy, because there's no doubt that he was a nice guy. You know, I went on a lot of eclipse trips with him and so forth. So I got to see him outside of the office, if you will. And uh, gosh darn, you know, I really do miss him. I really do. You know, you've come across many of these cases, I should say many of these cases of UFO have been brought to you. What is the most amusing or surprising resolution that you were involved in, even if it was just you were following it in the news or you were having a conversation with someone about it? Well, it was a phone call, in fact, and it was from Long Island, if you know where that is. It was a, a woman in Long Island who claimed her dog had been abducted by aliens. And when we asked her, well, what, <laughs> what's the evidence for that? She said, well, its behavior was a little odd. Okay. I mean, you know, may, may, maybe it was aliens. Maybe it was, you know, bad kibble or something like that. So she thought it was abducted, but the dog was abducted and then returned, and it was acting strangely after its, after its visit on the alien ship? Yeah, you got it. Yep. Yep. The aliens really changed her dog's life, I guess. Wow, that's rough. <laughs> I get it. But yes, yes, indeed. I, I, I mean, I, I get calls and emails, well, a couple of times a week now from people who have something to report. And, you know, I, I've never heard from anybody whom I thought was just making stuff up to, you know, tease me or something like that. They're all very sincere, and I listen to them, and I offer what I think might be a plausible explanation. But, of course, you know, in some cases, you, you just don't know. You can't solve all crimes. Well, I don't know that there's a cr crime here. I don't think it's a crime to be an alien. I don't think it's a crime to not know what's in the sky. But you're actually very sympathetic to people who call. You've always spent time with them, trying to understand what it is that they think they're seeing, and then you provide the evidence why it may not be that, uh, because people are genuinely puzzled 
by something that they're seeing. And they don't have the training of an engineer or of an astronomer to understand what they might be seeing. Yeah, there's that. And it's also just, the, you know, the sort of the human angle of it. I, I watched a famous astronomer once belittling questions that had come from the audience after a talk that this person had presented. And he was kind of belittling the audience for its lack of science sophistication. And I thought, gee, you know, that, that, I, I don't want to ever do that. So I try to <laughs> catch myself if I find that I'm, you know, being sarcastic or something like that. I mean, people are telling you something because they want you to, you know, give them an answer or at least try to give them an answer. So I tried to do that. Coming up, well, the NASA report hasn't exactly lessened interest in UFOs or suspicions of a government cover-up. So what do we make of the latest claim that the military is hiding evidence of alien technology? This episode of Big Picture Science is Skeptic Check, NASA UFO Study. In July 1947, debris from an apparent crash was found in the desert 60 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. Now, the farming and ranching town of Roswell is also home to an Air Force base. The official story was that the pile of metal and rubber was the remnant from an instrument-carrying high-altitude balloon, part of a defense effort known as Project Mogul. But the story from the Air Force about what that rancher had found changed and changed again. And that shifting narrative planted a seed of public mistrust. That widespread belief that the government was hiding the truth about alien visitation has continued to this day. And it has spawned an unbroken chain of stories about UFOs, many involving cover-ups. As we heard from Nadia Drake, even a NASA report isn't likely to erase suspicion that the government knows more than it's saying about UFOs. Indeed. On the heels of the NASA update, an Air Force veteran and former U.S. intelligence officer named David Grush made the startling claim that the government has in its possession an intact alien craft. Well, that would certainly be big news and probably a boost of my career, too. <laughs> well, we discussed this with Mick West, an independent investigator of UFO sightings, and he helps us think about how to evaluate such an extraordinary claim. So, Mick, who is this guy, David Grush, and what is he saying? Well, David Grush is someone who works in the U.S. intelligence community, or at least he did, and he's claiming that the U.S. has recovered actual alien craft that have either, either crashed or have landed He's also claiming that some of these craft had alien bodies inside them, dead aliens. And he's claimed that they've done analysis on this craft and proved that they are aliens. And he's saying that he was told all this by other people, uh, but he claims to be able to prove it. Does this story sound familiar to you? It does sound familiar. It sounds like exactly the same type of story we've been hearing back since Roswell, back in the 1940s. And every few years since then, we get uh, either a new story that's similar or a new whistleblower who promises to tell us all about it. Yes, but he, he hasn't done that. Uh, Grush hasn't offered any evidence for his claim. And he seemed to, in the interview that I watched on, online, he seemed to avoid giving specific answers to questions with the excuse that he couldn't reveal the details. That too seems to fit a pattern. 
Indeed, yes. And I think he's not even really a whistleblower. He's kind of a, a secondhand whistleblower. He's blowing someone else's whistle. Uh, he's telling us stuff that he has heard from other people, not stuff that he's actually witnessed himself. So the stuff he isn't telling us is going to be secondhand knowledge when it does hopefully eventually come out. Well, without corroborating details, isn't this just another argument from authority story? We should believe him because he's been vetted by the government? Uh, he was vetted for the government for something else. He wasn't vetted for the government for revealing everything the government knows about UFOs. But yes, it is very much an argument from authority uh, here in that you know, he is supposedly a, a well-respected person in the intelligence community, but now he's retired and now he's doing this and it seems to be increasingly incredible, the story he's telling. Well, does he say how he came upon this information? I mean, he's telling you things and then also not telling you things. But, you know, what's the background? How could he know this stuff? Well, we know that he worked uh, briefly as uh, in, the, I think, the reconnaissance office, uh, which deals with satellite images. And he was the liaison with the UAP task force, which back then, a few years ago, was investigating UFOs for the Pentagon. So he's had contact with a number of people who are investigating these things. He has a high security clearance, and apparently he's talked to people who know about these programs. At least this is what he claims. And he has become convinced that these programs actually exist, and now he's trying to tell the world. What would be his motivation to do that? Does he just you know, want to undermine the government's uh, secret programs? Well, it's, it's not really clear what his motivation is. I think you know everybody would be wanting to get that information out if that information actually exists. Some people think it's the, for the benefit of humanity if we can tell uh, everybody about the alien visitors. Uh, he seems to have some grievances with the government. Uh, he says he was getting uh, reprisals uh, with, the, with the work that he's been doing and the questions he's been asking, and he left the government, and now he's doing this. It's, but uh, it's not really clear why. Yeah, I, you know, normally I ask myself, do these people have a very practical, a pecuniary interest in these stories? In other words, are they trying to sell a book or maybe just uh, get some publicity for themselves? Is there, you know, do they have an axe to grind themselves by telling us this, uh, this story? Well, he did say that he wants to set up a non-profit organization to study UFOs uh, after this uh, this bubbles through, whatever it, it is, whatever happens. He also seems to be, uh, he's saying that he wants the truth to be revealed to the public. So it seems like he's got a combination of, of honorable intentions as he describes them uh, and you know, plans that he wants to do going forward. It seems to me, again, to be an argument not from physical evidence or really very much evidence of any kind, other than what he's saying, but he is an Air Force veteran, and uh, he had access to classified information. And maybe with the public, that conveys a certain authority or reliability or credibility that most people wouldn't have. Absolutely. I think you know, this is something that people in the UFO community like to have, is a military person uh, giving their testimony. But military people really aren't that different from ordinary people in terms of being good eyewitnesses. Uh, you would think, though, that he would have a better handle on what information is true and what information is false if he is, in fact, a high-up uh, intelligence officer, which he seems to be. But that doesn't mean they're immune to being fooled, and we don't know who is fooling who at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, there is also a possibility that these are things that would be considered to be foreign technology and something like the National Reconnaissance Office would be looking out for things like this. And so he might have come across things in that capacity. 
but uh, apparently other people who know him or have looked into his background say that this is truly an impeccable source. It may well be that he is being entirely truthful in what he is saying, in that people have told him these things. So it may be that the error lies with the other people and not with him. Or it might be aliens. Well, many media outlets have run with this story. Uh, it's gotten a lot of oxygen from the media. Mr. Grush can't offer evidence because part of his claim is that the evidence is being suppressed. What do you think the media ought to do to cover this story? I mean, you know, are, are they doing the right thing? They, they don't seem to be offering much in the way of analysis. Well, I think they should ask some hard questions. He's actually made some fairly specific claims. He's claimed that uh, the United States recovered a UFO from Italy in 1944 and brought it back to the, the States and has been reverse engineering it. He claimed that uh, there was one UFO that was the size of a football field that they were studying. And he's claimed that there were UFOs that crashed or landed with alien bodies inside them. Now, these are very uh, outlandish and very specific claims. And I think uh, he needs to be asked for more details on this and how he knows that these things are true because I, I very much doubt that they are true and uh, questions need to be asked about what's actually going on here. Something the size of, did you say a football field? A football uh, field. Yeah, that would be hard to transport to or from Indeed. Italy, I would think. <laughs> you, you might notice that I have to say that, uh, you know, I had frequent conversations with one of the Apollo astronauts about what he claims to have seen in space, including, by the way, alien hardware. And he was convinced. But when I asked him, well, you know, what, what evidence do you have? Did you record anything with a camera or something? And he said, no, no, no. He was told this stuff by other people. Yeah. Yeah. And this uh, uh, <laughs> is very unfortunate. I think a lot of people repeat stories. A lot of what Dave Grush is saying is actually essentially UFO mythology. Uh, the stories like the, uh, the UFO recovered in Italy. It's just an old story. And the things he says about isotope ratios and uh, metamaterials are essentially just things that have been bouncing around the UFO community for the last decade. Well, I, is there any way to clear this up? I mean, you know, people can make the claims. Other people will say, no, this is unlikely to be true. And if Roswell is precedent, what will happen then will be a gentle tapering off of interest until the next incident. Yeah, that's probably what will happen. I, I really hope that Congress kind of takes uh, the reins here and actually drills down and figure out what's going on. You know, they say that uh, the task force can't investigate it because they don't have enough authority. But, you know, he's a 36-year-old intelligence officer. There's lots of people in the intelligence community who have higher clearance or the same clearance. Congress could just get a few of those and ask them to look into it and figure out exactly what the truth is behind his claims. Apparently, he's given Congress the information that they need, so they just need to go and look and see what's actually going on. Another thing that always strikes me about these things is that Actually, the Earth is being surveilled 24-7 by satellites, and they're not all American satellites, and they're not even all military satellites, right? And these satellites have pretty good resolution. I mean, they can, you know, read a book cover from 200 miles up, I'm sure. Uh, it, it seems to me that some enterprising person who uh, is able to, you know, get those data, and, and many of them are not classified, as I say, could find such craft if they actually were buzzing our skies, yeah, you would think so. And this, is, I think, is something that NASA is actually looking into. And I think what's going to come of such endeavors and things like the Galileo Project, where Professor Arvilova of Harvard is studying the skies, is that we're not going to find uh, alien UFO. We're just going to get better photographs of, of things that perhaps were previously unexplained, but now we'll be able to zoom in and see that it's actually a bird or a plane. Yeah. Uh, actually, Avilova's project involves, indeed, putting a suite of sensors 
on the tops of buildings or wherever and, you know, look for, for things uh, in as many different ways as they can think of, you know, infrared cameras, radar, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, in order to really address these kinds of stories, uh, you would have to have these things all over the planet, right? And that's unlikely to happen simply because of the required funding. So I don't know that we're soon going to get this kind of surveillance from the ground. seems like satellites, to me, are a better way to go. Yes, it would take rather a lot, and they have to be rather lucky, I think, with the, the limited uh, coverage they're initially going to have. But you know, apparently people see these things every day. If you believe the accounts of the Navy pilots, they are seeing UFOs by their training ranges every single day. And you think if you're seeing something every day, you have a highly repeatable environment, you should be able to go out there and figure out what it was, which uh, is kind of very suspicious to me. If they have something that they can repeat on a daily basis and they haven't figured out what it was, then perhaps it's not what it's being claimed to be. There's that. I think that the number of UFO reported sightings, reported, uh, is on the order of 8,000 per year these days. It's down a little bit from what it was a few years ago. But uh, actually, I don't know of any organization that spends its time looking into these, right? And maybe that's the problem. Maybe we should have a standing committee of people looking into this stuff, uh, as we did in the late 1940s, early 1950s. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, we do have various individuals looking at it. I have a forum called Metabunk, and there's a sub-forum of that called Skydentify, where we try to identify strange things in the sky. And we've had a lot of success over the years of uh, figuring out things, even things that are from the official uh, Navy videos and some of the unofficial uh, leaks of videos, like the Green Triangle video. So there's a lot of people who are capable of doing this. And perhaps if the government was to release a bit more of the information about these videos, more of them could be cleared up. Can you indulge me by giving me a sort of uh, an, uh, a little bit of insight into what are the uh, you know top contenders in your list of causes for these uh, perplexing videos? I mean, what do you mostly find that we were looking at? Well, the most common thing uh, in, in general is not really a thing. It's more of an effect. It's the parallax illusion, which is, uh, occurs when the camera is moving and the camera is focused on a particular point and something else comes through that, the field of view of the camera, it appears like that thing is actually moving. But because it's really the camera that's moving, it's kind of like it's sweeping its line of sight across the sky and it gives this really compelling illusion. And this happens a lot with military hardware because military hardware is designed to zoom in at a very powerful zoom level, but also track targets. Military hardware, the, these targeting pods, it's generally something that's tracking a target so they can shoot a missile at it. So the combination of these things leads to this very compelling illusion in these military videos of, of actual motion. And this is something that was discussed by Sean Kirkpatrick uh, at the NASA hearing, and he gave an example of this uh, shot from a, a drone of, of this, this effect. And I think a very large percentage of these videos can be resolved by considering parallax. What do you think the response of the government should be at this point? Uh, you know, NASA is obliged to provide a report addressing the 800 and some sightings, if you will, that are considered still, you know, candidates for investigation. In other words, it's not obvious what they were. Should the government do more or is the government too suspect an entity to be involved in this? Well, I think the government uh, needs to clear up as much as possible for the, for the public. I think they are keeping things that are secret that do not need to be secret. Like their investigation of, say, the, the gimbal and the GoFast videos, they could tell us what they have discovered in that. 
The GoFast video shows a small object that seems to be moving very, very rapidly over the surface of the ocean. Uh, but when you actually do the math on the GoFast video, which I and NASA have done, it turns out it's not actually moving uh, very fast at all. It's actually moving quite slow, and the apparent motion comes from the parallax illusion. They could tell us a lot more about what they've discovered in the other investigations. But also the government is essentially being accused of this vast uh, decades-old conspiracy theory. And I think they really need to address that. The, the claims of David Grush really do need to be addressed by the government uh, uh, so that the people do not lose confidence in the government, but, at but least why no did, more than normal. <laughs> but why would the government do it? What motivation is there for the government to cover up something like this without, you know, it doesn't seem to me to have clear security implications. Well, you know, the theory is that the, the technology is so great that they have been able to make lots and lots of money by kind of selling it to industry. And it's really part of the military industrial complex. You know, it's this massive conspiracy theory that seems highly implausible, requires tens of thousands of people to be in on it. And apparently is something that's we're in cahoots with Russia and China and also in competition with them because they have their own uh, recovery program. It all seems ridiculously implausible. But if people believe it, they don't trust the government. And it's in the government's interest to really try to clear that up. Well, finally, Mick, it seems that distrust of the government, because we think it's hiding the truth about alien visitation, is likely to continue. I don't think we've seen the last of it. Do you think that this issue is ever going to go away? I don't think so. I think it's going to repeat. I think, like you said, this will fade away eventually. People will be muttering about it for many years to come and probably decades to come. But something new will come along. A new hope will arrive for ufology and we'll repeat the cycle again. Sounds like Star Wars, A New Hope. Mick West, thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Seth. Mick West is a skeptical investigator who looks at claims of UFOs. You know, Seth, when we heard that NASA was getting involved looking into the UFO phenomena, or UAP phenomena, um, I thought they might be able to provide definitive answers. And it sounds like they aren't going to be able to clear up the mystery because there will always be a certain percentage of objects that we just can't identify, at least right now. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I mean, I'm glad that NASA is involved because that gives, uh, you know, legitimacy to the investigation. But keep in mind that we've gone through this before. It's been more than half a century now since the, uh, the scientific community was investigating UFO reports, the Roswell incident, all that stuff, back in the 1950s, late 1950s, early 1960s. And that was a group composed, again, mostly of academics. They were certainly a competent group. But, uh, you know, they could explain most of the sightings, but not all of them. So we're in that boat again. Do you think that there could be a new phenomenon that could explain the small percentage of UAPs that we can identify? For example an astronomical phenomenon. Well, I mean, that's always possible that we're missing some important physics, if you will, that could explain these phenomenon. And the reason we don't understand them is because we don't know about this branch of science. But honestly, I think that violates what's called uh, Occam's razor, right? The, you know, all the phenomena that have been seen so far can be, I think, explained with phenomena that we are familiar with. So, you know, why appeal to stuff you can never, uh, you can never use as a tool to understand? Well, I didn't mean like a whole new branch of science. I just mean maybe it's an astronomical phenomena that we haven't identified. Well, maybe. But remember, these things are not very far away. You know, whatever appears on those videos, at least in those three cases, is probably much less than 
100 miles away because, you know, considerably more than 100 miles away, and you can't see anything because it's behind the Earth, if you will, right? You have a limited horizon. So I, I, I think that that probably rules out that sort of thing. This show would not be possible without the terrestrial help of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that searches for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science that gives an update about the study of unidentified aerial and anomalous phenomena is Skeptic Check NASA UFO Study. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.